Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church in Springfield, Missouri. Christ Community features life-giving, verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible. If you would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. Let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. I'm going to read verses 18 through 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. The first three chapters of Romans talks about the culpability of humans in rebelling against God, defying his moral law, and being deserving of his judgment and wrath. That's the bad news. The good news is that when we are at our worst, God loves us. God expresses his grace toward us in the giving of his son, in his death, burial, and resurrection as a sacrifice for our sins. The punishment that we deserved were put upon Christ. The extent of his love is only understood when we realize the guilt of our sin and his deserving wrath. So let us not forget The redemptive story starts with the bad news to get to the good news as nations across the globe reel from one crisis to another. The Collins English Dictionary revealed last year's word of the year, and it is permacrisis. It's a noun defined as an extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events. If the Apostle Paul would have had use of this word, he would say, your sin has caused a great permacrisis because of your rebellion against God. The first three chapters of Romans are used to convey this permacrisis of sin. In chapter 1, he portrays the idolatry, immorality, and antisocial behavior of Gentile society. In the first half of chapter 2, he calls out the critical moralizers who profess ethical standards and apply them to everybody else but themselves. In the second half of chapter 2, 
He points out the self-confident Jews who boast of the knowledge of God, but they do not obey it. And then in chapter 3, he covers the whole human race and calling them guilty and without excuse before God. Now, in reality, Paul does us a favor by calling this rebellion and rejection sin. Because you see, with sin, there is a solution. If sin is the problem, then forgiveness and repentance are a solution. If sin were not the problem, we'd be in a worse position. One cannot repent of confusion or psychological flaws inflicted by our parents, right? Recognizing sin and our need for forgiveness are the only grounds for hope and joy. I heard this week of an author defining joy, and he said, joy is always within the context of relationship. And that when God looks upon us, his face lights up. He has joy because we're his creatures and because being in Christ. And we know that about God, and that brings us joy. That's an amazing concept. We could say the same thing. When we're face-to-face with those we love, it brings us joy always in the context of relationship. This is good news. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We saw last time that we were in Romans that People use their God-given, image-bearing morality all the time, but they refuse to acknowledge God for that. Uh, We see many in our culture condemning sexual harassment, big pharma price manipulation, the sexualizing of children, mass shootings. As a culture, we call these things evil, and we should. However, society does not recognize God as the moral lawgiver, and they reject his judgment and his wrath. God's wrath is not an emotion that flares up haphazardly. It's a pure expression that comes from his holiness. Instead of being a temper tantrum, God's wrath is expressed on behalf of of all people, and describes his enmity against all wrongs. God's wrath is perfect, and he is not a respecter of persons, so therefore people hate him for that. And by the way, there are religious voices that echo the chorus of rejecting the God of the Bible. Some years ago, an article in the Times of London reported that 14 church study groups in Woodford in East London looked at the Old Testament Psalms and concluded that 84 of them were, quote, not fit for Christians to sing. 
They reasoned that the wrath and vengeance reflected in those psalms was not compatible with the Christian gospel of love and grace. Uh, we have faith communities right here that will tell you the same thing. Hans Hubris rejects God's written revelation, and this leads to a rejection of his character and ultimately of God himself. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul makes the case that nobody can plead innocence because nobody can plead ignorance. Regardless of the relative opportunities each person has to hear truth, all people have God-given evidence of his existence and nature. But mankind is universally inclined to resist and assault the evidence. A disease left Helen Keller as a very young girl without sight, hearing, and speech. And through Ann Sullivan's tireless and selfless efforts, Helen learned to communicate through touch and even learned to talk. And when Miss Sullivan tried to tell Helen about God, the girl's response was that she already knew about him. She just didn't know his name. It was said of Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Every human being benefits from God's self-manifestation in his creation, as we read of our verse here in Romans. Every person has a witness of God, and therefore every person is accountable to respond to him by faith. Notice that what can be known about God is plain to them. I was in a home about a year ago where they had hanging on the wall an original Rembrandt and a Salvador Dali. They were both authenticated and signed. Now, it would be foolish to deny the artist, but modern man not only denies the authentication of God's art, they deny the master artist himself. They deny he exists. But creation and man's conscience are stamps of God's work. And man's denial has gone so far afield that people are not just denying that God didn't create the world and put a conscience in man, but they are now denying, and not just now, but even in ages past, they deny the reality of the physical world. Solipsism or subjective idealism holds that any knowledge outside of one's mind is suspect, including the physical world. Philosopher George Berkeley denied the existence of material substance and believed that reality consists solely within the mind. And according to Berkeley, things exist only so far as they are perceived. You know, it's one thing for me to stand up here and say that this stage was not made 
by an intelligent designer or carpenters. That's one thing. But it's quite another to say that this stage does not exist. That's a special kind of crazy. But that's the length that man will go to to shove God out of the picture. You see, if I get rid of material things, I don't have to deal with those pesky questions about where those things come from. But that doesn't get rid of the evidence. It would not be a surprise that the moral conscience is also explained away as something completely learned and, and relative and not existing in any absolute or universal sense. You know, I mean, if, if, if I deny reality, it's a rejection of a creator. But if I deny morality or conscience, I'm rejecting God as a judge. It's interesting that in our passage, some scholars translate the phrase to them in our verse in Romans as in them. The NASB says within them. The King James Version translates it in them. This would speak to the knowledge of God within man through a moral and religious conscience. Paul said in Romans 2, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their Conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God has graciously provided abundant evidence of himself. And when Paul spoke to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, he said this, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is telling them, look at creation. Look at us as human beings. God has made it all. There is evidence of his creation. There is evidence of his greatness and order. There is evidence of every human being having a sense of morality. In addition, God is sovereign over the earth. And they can observe all this that God has made and he's made himself available. Listen, the odds of this order of the natural world happening by chance are so infinitesimally small, they're virtually nil. When one understands how DNA works, how cells function, how a perfect baby comes into being through a sperm and an egg, the reality of God becomes evidence. 
So if this were all true, then it would behoove those listening to Paul to seek this God, for he's the creator. He's sovereign over all human affairs. Paul is saying, God is not too big to not care for you like the Greek gods. He's eminent. He's not too high that he's unreachable. He's a person that you can know. That was a foreign concept to them. They could honestly seek God in the person of Christ. Though they worshiped an unknown God, Jehovah God could be known to them. Even their secular poets gave a nod to the nearness of God. Paul quotes from two different poets in Acts. Um, Epimenides was a Cretan poet who wrote, For in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul quoted Aratus from Cilicia when he said, We are his offspring. Now those quotes were originally directed to Zeus, but Paul pulls something out of culture and creates a connection for his audience to build a bridge to them. They could know this God personally. Again, no such claim could be made of the false gods worshipped by the Greeks. God revealed himself in Christ so people would seek him, a result made possible because he's not just transcendent, but he's reachable, eminent through Christ. So it lets us know where to build bridges, not to just condemn the culture, but to look at the poets and the artists and to build a bridge. Khalid's song, Talk, says, Can we just talk, wanting more out of a relationship, and claims he gets lost without the love of another person? Rihanna sings in her song, Stay, not really sure how to feel about it, Something in the way you move makes me feel like I can't live without you. It takes me all the way. I want to stay. With these songs, we, we hear this, this yearning. It spurs a conversation about the, the limits of human love and where to find a lasting, unconditional love. Or take the fascination with superhero movies that are prevalent today. It says something about how humans are pining for someone close by who will deal with the evil in the world. Well, I think we have something to say about that. The point is, instead of shunning the culture, we can build bridges. Some might listen. Plutarch, a first century philosopher and priest of a pagan temple said, you may find cities without walls or literature or kings or houses or wealth or money, without gymnasia or theaters. But no one ever saw a city without temples and gods. Unquote. It's a way of saying we see everywhere evidence of a yearning for something more. From a remote African tribe to urban culture, we see this yearning. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God's eternal power and nature can be seen by observing creation. Now listen, Paul's thesis is not that man does not know God, but they reject the revealed God that is known. 
Verse 21 says, For although they knew God. See, God is not letting man off the hook. If I only had more evidence. No, you have the evidence. They did not honor him as God and give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, the argument of the order of the universe is overwhelming and it can be illustrated just by thinking of order in smaller things. Consider, if I had 10 pennies in my pocket and I numbered each of those pennies one through 10, then put my hand back in my pocket, my chance of pulling out the number one penny would be one in 10. If I place the one penny back in my pocket and mix all the pennies again, the chances of pulling out number two would be one in 100. The chances of repeating the same procedure and coming up with penny number three would be one in 1,000. To do so with all of them, to pick one through 10 in order would be one in 10 billion. Now, when considering the cell, all living things, the human body, the rotation of the planets, the moon and earth being an exact measurement apart to keep from our own destruction, one realizes created order is more likely than a random evolutionary process. Noting the order and design of our universe, Kepler, founder of modern astronomy, discoverer of the three planetary laws of motion and originator of the term satellite, said, get this, the undevout astronomer is mad. That means crazy. The undevout astronomer. David sang, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. God's eternal power refers to his never-ending omnipotence, which was reflected in the awesome creation being brought into existence and being sustained. You know, it really takes a concerted effort of the will to deny and suppress the truth that a powerful God made and sustains the universe. Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist and past director of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, has said, Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. Now that's quite a first statement right there. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks, what cause produced this effect? Who or what put the matter and energy uh, into the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. End quote. 
The systems of the universe give evidence of order rather than disorder or random evolutionary chance. The likelihood of the complicated Earth systems being ordered by chance has a probability near zero when you observe the world that we live in. Here's a few things to consider that I think demonstrate that there's intelligence behind the complicated order. Agricultural studies have determined that the average farmer in Minnesota gets over 400,000 gallons of rainwater per acre per year, free of course. The state of Missouri has some 70,000 square miles and averages 38 inches of rain a year. That amount of water is equal to a lake 250 miles long, 60 miles wide, and 22 feet deep. Random chance? Or has God provided the rains for the crops to grow? As Paul told the Lystrans in Acts, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The U.S. Natural Museum has determined that there are at least a million species of insects, including some 15,000 varieties of ants. There are over 2,000 species of birds in the United States, with a population around 5 billion, among which some species are able to fly 500 miles nonstop across the Gulf of Mexico. Mallard ducks can fly 60 miles an hour, Eagles, 100 miles an hour. And falcons can dive at speeds of over 200 miles an hour. Random chance? Or has God created an order of living things? The earth is 25,000 miles in circumference. It weighs 5.97 billion trillion metric tons. I know that because I read it on the internet. <laughs> no matter how heavy it is, it hangs suspended in space. It spins at a thousand miles per hour with absolute precision and careens through space around the sun at a speed of a thousand miles per minute and an orbit 580 million miles long. And we're still standing on it. Is this random chance? Or were the scriptures true in saying, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He not only created it, he sustains it, he holds it up. The witness of God in nature is so abundant and clear that denying it is foolish. The condemnation upon humans is because of the rejection against the light that we all have. 
The invisible God has made himself both visible and knowable through what he has made. God made the world in such a way that when we break his laws, we do so at our peril. And if we are left solely at the mercy of some impersonal moral order, there would be nothing but death and destruction, but that's not how we were left. Into this dilemma of humankind comes the grace and love of a personal God. The love of God by an act of unbelievable free grace lifts man out of the consequences of sin and saves him from the wrath that we have all incurred. But now, because of Christ, God sees him and his sacrifice, and we're not identified by our sin. God does not desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You will seek me and find me, the Lord promised through Jeremiah, when you search for me with all your heart. That's good news for anyone who can say, this has to be God. How can I know him? Enter Christ. And that's the good news to us today. If you've come to us today, and your life has been fraught with just the bad news, then the good news is that the gospel is for you and God can forgive you of your sin. And if you're a Christian, the good news is this God who is the creator of the universe, who is so powerful and he sustains it all and he's sovereign, do you think he can't handle your money issues? Do you think he can't handle your relational issues? you think he can't be with you in your job situation, your sickness? I can have confidence in this God. And I can experience all of that with joy because he's here with me. Let's pray.